Welcome to Unonymous, the social revolution redefining normal, where you are allowed to be a human. Because we believe that through open conversation and education, understanding will open the doors to acceptance. Because truth without fear is the opposite of fear without truth. Well, there's a pill for that. Um, that should actually be our national motto, um, because in most cases there is. Sometimes there's several pills. But what happens when medication management takes over behavioral modification? I mean, what happens when we think our magic pills are uh, what's going to cure all of our ails? <laughs> the simple answer is prepared to be sorely disappointed. Um, so real quick background on medication. So there's a thing for substance abuse treatment called MAT, which is medically assisted treatment. And that's exactly what it is. It's using medication to assist the treatment. Note, we did not say cure. Okay. It means to help, right? There's no cure for the human condition. Okay. We are designed to be addicted. That's our dopamine circuit. Food is good. Sex is good. Drugs and alcohol are good, right? We are programmed to feel good. So what Matt does is it helps reduce cravings. It helps modify our brain chemistry. Um, through something called uh, an agonist or an antagonist, which simply put our medications that either add something or block something from happening in our brains. So in mental health, there's not really a term called MAT, right? Rather, it's, it's a group of protocols, uh, something that can be described as medication management, since pretty much all of our mental health issues, uh, Mike and I's included, uh, we have a medication associated with them. And what the medications primarily do is they work on the kind of the trifecta of brain chemicals that regulate our moods, um, which essentially is serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. And of course, that's an oversimplification because there are lots of other mechanisms that cause and or treat um, mental health. So let's talk about medication use for a second. Um, the onset of the opioid epidemic is often attributed to overprescription of pain pills, which then led people into, you know, seeking more pain pills and or pain pills are too expensive. And so a lot of folks shift to heroin, right? But it started as a use, there was a use of a pain scale, um, which for doctors, then it crept in over time to a, like a scoring system. And that scoring system was how doctors got graded on uh, how they treated their patients, which then folds into how much money they get from insurance, which also folds into how much money they get from pharmaceuticals. But we're not going to go into the whole, uh, you know, logistics behind how that stuff happened. But the bottom line is pain and getting rid of pain is not a bad goal, right? We shouldn't moralize it uh, to where it's bad to want to be painless, but it's unrealistic, right? I had a friend that uh, was, you know, an opioid addict in recovery that went in for surgery and they wanted to prescribe opioids. And, you know, she basically said, in what world do we live in where we're not supposed to feel pain? And I just thought that was a really interesting point, right? There is no magic solution to pain, okay? There is debilitating pain and there's manageable pain, but both of those concepts contain the word pain, right? Not painless. So the goal of medication uh, in both mental health and substance use is to manage medical symptoms. 
And it's true that some medications can eliminate symptoms. But when it comes to mental health and substance use, thinking we can eliminate the symptoms of what is natural to us, which is our addictive cycle, right, is completely unrealistic. Um, instead, medications should be used as something that can help our symptoms, help manage our symptoms, as in they're part of the overall treatment plan, uh, not the magic pill solution. So let's talk about behavioral modification, right? Behavioral therapy. I mean, the goal of therapy and self-help groups, um, you know, and mindfulness efforts is to alter or change our behaviors, right? And I often describe self-help groups as helping teach us new coping mechanisms as, you know, mine was previously shutting my brain off with alcohol. And Mike, what do you call this? You call it the mental dojo? Cognition dojo. Co that's what it is. The cognition dojo, right? It's a great term. I mean, we're training for uh, fixing our brains. So changing our behavior to do something healthy and something enduring is the end goal of every treatment program in mental health and substance use. Right? It takes discipline. It takes a significant amount of time because for many of us, it took years for us to get this way and it will take, guess what? Years for us not to be this way. Okay. It takes time, but it's our day-to-day -day efforts that help get us there. I mean, it's not an easy button solution and it is work. So, okay, we're lazy, right? So let's be honest. I mean, the, the wheel, for example, was created because we got tired of carrying stuff because it's heavy. And uh, everything, I often say, every modern invention known to man is, is because we're inherently lazy. You know, cars, well, we got to get there faster. Why? Because it sucks to walk, right? But don't take this as an insult. It's true. It's just our nature, right? We seek to make hard things easy, okay? So just be aware of that. Seeking the easy button and chasing the pill is a lazy solution, right? And in the end, we won't appreciate the effort uh, that we didn't take. The things in life that I appreciate uh, the most were very hard to achieve, right? Sobriety, uh, 25 years of marriage this year, right? Financial stability. Um, yeah, and speaking of marriage, there's no magic pill for that. That's a lot of work, by the way. And I love my wife, and she, she would laugh at me if I said that. Um, the point of all these things is that they take time and effort to see the results. Uh, I often call medication, like the medication that I take, is, is what helps me get my feet under me. But I still have to do all the walking, right? There is a difference. So let's talk about a couple different words here. There's a difference between uncomfortable and intolerable, right? Recovery, in a lot of ways, is learning how to be uncomfortable. Social anxiety, right? Big reason to drink. Do you really think that you're alone in that? I mean, most people in most groups have social anxiety. And why do you think that there's alcohol everywhere at social events, right? So here's something unique and something interesting. This is what Unonymous is really about. Um, ask someone, right? Tell someone that you're socially anxious. Ask someone else if they are, and I bet you would. I bet you most of them are, right? I almost guarantee that everybody in a social setting has some sort of social anxiety, right? Cravings. I really want to drink. In fact, when you told me to stop drinking, and when I told myself to stop drinking, there was no time that I wanted alcohol more than when I said no, right? 
But that's in our nature, wanting to do things that people say that we can't do. I mean, who really, really wants what they can't have? Pretty much everybody, right? So again, it's not abnormal. This is a completely normal response, and all of us do it, right? It is uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, to be left in our own skin, vulnerable to all of our stimuluses. But guess what, right? If you're listening to this, you have survived every bad day you've had so far. Right? Which means you can keep learning to do more and more of that. So just as there is no easy button, right? there's also no hard line. There's no shame in needing medication uh, to process life, your addiction, or to cope with your underlying conditions. I take quite a few medications. So does Mike. Right? Recovery programs, self-help or otherwise, would be very wise to accept that there is a symbiosis between uh, mental health, medication, therapy, and sobriety, right? Everyone needs therapy. Let me say that again. Everyone needs therapy. There's nobody that's perfect. Some of us need both therapy and medication, right? So just like I've talked about in other rants, if you have a headache, what do you do? You take a pill, right? Take a Tylenol, take a Motrin, take something like that, right? Same thing. If you're depressed, you take a pill, right? It's no different. So people that think Everyone should approach recovery with a zero medication mantra. That makes about as much sense as them saying you don't need a jacket because they don't feel cold. Right? It's not their recovery method you should be concerned about. It's yours. So you do you. So as usual, and uh, as we go through again and again, I tend to relate this idea to something that we know very well in America, and that is diabetes. Right? Insulin is medication management behavioral modification is our new diet, right? We need both to achieve balance, just as I need both to achieve the balance in my own life. Um, I have mood disorder, right? I take three types of mind-altering medications. I take lamotrigine, bupropion, and lithium, right? Otherwise known as lamictal, wellbutrin, and lithium, right? Finding the combination has been an absolute game changer. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on and how some of my stuff is shifting. Um, but I didn't start with that, right? I started with my psychologist shortly after I got out of rehab. Then about a year later, we decided that I needed something more. And I saw a psychiatrist, right? I started uh, Lamotrigine, which is a, a mood stabilizer, right? Several months later, uh, we added the bupropion, the Wellbutrin uh, for depression. And then about a year later, uh, we topped it off with lithium, right? Just to kind of take the tops down. And we worked over a couple of years to find the best dose combination. But here's the most important point. All of this time, I was seeing, and I still do, see my psychologist every two weeks for cognitive behavioral therapy. Makes sense, right? I am not balanced. I don't think anybody's balanced. Some people are more imbalanced than others. But I don't think I'll ever truly be balanced. But I can be stable, right, through a combination of both cognitive therapy and medication management, right? There is no perfect solution and there is no magic pill uh, to chase after to fix it all. Um, and at this point in my life, Mike, I don't think I would want to take it anyway because I like who I am, right? I like who I've become. So there is no magic pill and uh, I take quite a few of them. So I, and I can tell you firsthand there's no magic pill. So, um, so today we're going to kind of chase this rabbit hole a little bit, which is something that we normally do. I, I do love me some rabbits, like I say in group a lot. Um, 
I reserve the right to take rabbit holes. So, um, so let's talk about Mike, Mike and I were jamming earlier today and he kind of brought it. He's like, Hey man, you got to share that. Let's talk about my lithium gauge. <laughs> let's talk about some, he's laughing at me. Let's talk about some compulsivity, Mike. So let's talk about stoves real quick. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Mike has a glass top stove just like I do. So, um, back in the day when I was just getting started on uh, the psychiatry side of the house and, and started taking meds, uh, the the people in my house said they used to gauge the level of my mania by how clean the stove was. So you got a glass top stove, it gets crap on it, and then it's just it looks horrible because it reflects everything, right? <laughs> Mike's laughing. But um, so basically, if the stove was really clean and I was really obsessive about it, then I was probably hypomanic. And when I didn't care is when I was balanced. So, and Mike, you were saying, what do you do with your stove? I use a razor blade to clean it. <laughs> um, when I moved into this house, I, I noticed, uh, you know, drawers on the stove. And I'm like, what the hell? You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, my... My thing, my big thing is, I don't care if my house is on fire, my kitchen will be clean. My kitchen <laughs> must be clean. I don't know why, it's just my thing. The kitchen has to be clean. So, um, yeah, when I saw that, I'm like, okay, okay, I can figure this out. It's glass, so I'm going to use a razor blade. I use steel wool, I use whatever, as long as it's it just nice and clean. Um yeah, maybe that's a little obsessive compulsive. <laughs> no, but the drill, dude. <laughs> oh yeah, the uh, so yeah, I got a <laughs> I got a drill bit designed specifically for uh, you know deburring steel, and I use it for cleaning glass. <laughs> so if I could, so you got a drill bit on your stove, and you're just going to town, man. I'm that's sober, awesome. not sane. Hey, hey, exactly, bro. <laughs> so, so on the meds thing, I mean, I list my meds on, on there, but that's just something that I do. But um, chasing meds and chasing that perfect fix, I think is something that's really dangerous, right? Because we want that easy button and I can't have it. And I just have to learn how to deal with that. Yeah. If, uh, if I may, it hits them some important points kind of that we should talk about. We should talk about discomfort versus pain. Um, you know, maybe because I'm in my 40s or, you know, finally becoming my dad. It's just that what I've noticed is a diminished resiliency factor where people have like almost no ability to be uncomfortable in modern society. Like right down to disagreement. So, like, it's almost a, a mass hysteria type thing or social acceptability of instability. Uh, case in point, somebody, you know, doesn't put the grocery cart away. I know that, that that became like a buzz thing recently. But when I see somebody in their 20s that will not put a grocery cart away, <laughs> they just leave it in the parking lot. <laughs> And then I go engage this individual respectfully, like, pardon me, is your leg broken? <laughs> and it's like, oh, how dare you? You know, like, oh, no, how dare you? 
you know, the, the, I don't know if I'm really going to make a point with that, but the point is, is like, it's, it's about effort, period. Anything in life is about effort. So when, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic by virtue, an addict, et cetera, et cetera. I've had multiple surgeries since getting sober. And one of the things I had to do when I went on opiates, because opiates are great, you know, it's like they work and they also have this amazing ability to take me out of the place I don't like called reality. Uh, so, you know, I had uh, neck fusion and they had me on Percocet. And this was three days post-surgery. Uh, and I'm sitting in my house and I'm like, okay, is this pain or is this discomfort? And what I came to is like, this is discomfort. Okay. Then I'm going to deal and get used to it because the body has a natural pain fighter called endorphins. And when we supplement these endorphins with opiates, it actually reduces them. So when people come off of opiates, they actually are in a, in a great deal of pain because the body stopped producing the natural pain fighters. So when people tell you they're in a lot of pain, that's not a joke. They really are. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you know, like getting a 12 month supply for, you know, a surgery, it's like, okay, well, we don't, you know, I just, that alone is something else onto itself. But um, I'm not bagging on the doctors either. You know, they're counting on me to be irresponsible with it. And uh, I'm proud to say I was. But I really had to get to that point where I asked myself, is this pain or is this discomfort? And the whole reason I have to ask that question is I am one thought away from my next addiction or my next problem, my next thing. So, okay, I can deal with discomfort. If sobriety has taught me anything. I, I can deal with discomfort. It's not comfortable, but it's also very short-lived. It's just a short-lived moment, and then I'm going to get through it. So, so that's, that's kind of the whole thing. So like now we talk about happy. I like, I hear that all the time. I want to be happy. Okay. Would you rather be happy or content? I'd rather be content. Content, right? Content is not dependent on emotion. It's, it's more of like an acceptance of reality as is. See, if I'm happy, you know, I'm, I got uh, neurochemicals and neurotransmitters going through me and dopamine and all that other uh, stuff. And uh, but the problem is, is like what happens is they go away. Now what? Now I'm back to, uh, you know, I guess homeostasis of what. But now what is that? That phenomenon is addiction. Mm -hmm. That is addiction. It's like I need to be happy. I need to. You don't need to be happy. None of us need to be happy. Happiness is designed to be short-lived. That's why, like, when, you know, Ooh, in Oregon... Wow. What would you, you say? Happiness ha was designed to be short-lived. It's designed to be short-lived. So like you can it. enjoy it. I mean, otherwise you'd be stuck in a permanent state of orgasm. And then, and then it would just kind of be normal. And then it's like, okay, cool, I'm orgasming again. You see, but that's the whole point. It's like it's supposed to be enjoyed. Right. But... But we're not supposed to stay on the mountaintop permanently. You know, I heard that that statement made before because that makes sense. Like the, the view is incredible. It's beautiful and all these things. But the oxygen is not that great up there. 
and eventually it's <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna become lackluster. So it's important to get back down to the valley. But the other thing that discomfort does is it builds. Mm. Discomfort builds. Uh, dieting. Dieting's fantastic and all this other stuff, but the problem with diet is it, it denotes a, a layer of temporary. That's what it denotes. Instead of that, we say, what I've learned to say is, I'm not on a diet. This is how I eat. Interesting. And and that, that right there is a decision. I've made a decision hmm. that this is how I'm going to be. Is it going to be perfect? Am I going to stay on this this short and narrow, or straight and narrow the whole time? No, I'm probably going to fall off like I, I do because I'm a human. I like I, I cannot human perfectly. I haven't found okay. anybody that can. Exactly. It's okay, a, so go ahead. Sorry. sorry. Go I was going to say because the – you said there's a difference. I like it. I'm just chewing on it still. Yeah. On a diet. So on a diet means I can come off the diet. It's like I'm but, just doing this for a little bit of time. Yeah, but this is how I eat. Is this is how I eat? Right. I like but, it. But what we see is a lot of fad diets, and then these supplements, and then like, well, I'm going to do this for a little while, and then then what? You're going to go back to you know smashing twelve gallons of ice cream, which is another segment we did. But <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? You're going to go back to eating like crap, and the weight's going to come back on. So what where in there is your personal responsibility to yourself it's i have to make a decision and i'm making a, a conscious decision that i'm not going to do this anymore because it's not good for me it may have worked for me in my 20s it's not working for me in my 40s i am i'm tired of having my whole body jiggle when i'm brushing <laughs> my teeth and i have a freaking sonicare you know what i mean like so so yeah, could I go on diet pills? Could I do HCG injections? Can I do all? Yeah, I can do all these things, or I can just make a conscious decision to change the way I eat, and right. and and the way I work out, which is another criticality point I learned with getting older. It's about how I work out. Now it's let not, me go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump on the how you work out, but because um, I've seen you work out, it's insane. <laughs> But let me let me throw kind of not not. I don't do that out. anymore. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say because you're in your forties and that yeah, that, you know what hurts. Um, but here's so another thing with that. Let's keep on the diet, but not a diet. Um, the lifestyle change to eat. I know lots of people that eat because of depression, right? And I'm there's one of them. a. Yep, and there's a direct correlation between that depression cycle and that food cycle and that dopamine cycle, right? So I want to say something very bluntly to everybody that's listening or whatever. There's nothing wrong with taking medication to help you get started and to get your feet under you for your lifestyle lifestyle change for this is how you eat. See, I'm not going to say diet anymore, Mike. Thanks. For your lifestyle change for this is how you eat. A lot of folks will need something to supplement that because that dopamine circuit has to start being fixed, right? If you start just with the lifestyle change of eating, you have no dopamine, right? Because your body has been used to that dopamine circuit of, you know, purging, not purging, but binging on food and things like that because that's how you got your dopamine. So if you take away the food and that's all you do, you're going to be remarkably unhappy and beyond discomfort 
you're not going to have an impetus to keep going. So for a lot of folks, taking that pill to get started is a good idea, but the discipline is what you're hitting on, which is this is how I eat. That's, uh, I'm trying to remember the numbers. I could look it up on my smartphone, but I'm not going to, not right now. Um, I want to say it was like, about 90% of your serotonin is actually made in your digestive tract, which stands to reason why we get cranky when we don't. Hangry. We get hangry. Yeah, that's the that's the optimum. I get hangry. I get hangry. Have a snicker. <laughs> I use that one yeah, because um, rabbit hole, right? Sure. So we teach a thing. You know, you know the word halt, right? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Yeah. Right, which leads to, you know, boredom, anxiety, depression, and stress. Which drinking. then leads to drinking. <laughs> exactly. Right. But it's so true. And I throw that thing up. Um, I want to say it was 2017 or 2018, the uh, Super Bowl commercial with uh, Danny Trail, where he was playing uh, Marsha in the in the Brady Bunch. And it's just yes! standing on the stairs. And he's like, so Danny Trejo. And he's like, Rrr. right. And he's like, have a Snickers. You're not yourself when you're hungry. I just thought that one nailed it. And the coolest part about that, honestly, is Danny Trejo has been sober for decades. And he yeah. speaks over 40 years, step. I believe. Yeah. He speaks at 12 step things. He's just a wonderful, wonderful person, um, which is totally typecast. And he really loves it. But uh, he loves loves recovery and loves people in recovery, by the way. So, yeah. Anyways, grab a Snickers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just uh, I, my my previous diatribe, I didn't want to give somebody the impression that I don't support medication. I do. It's the reliance factor. Again, it goes back into the diet is like, okay, I'm on this diet and that's what's going to help me lose weight. And I'm taking these diet pills um, to help me do that, you know, and, and but to put all my stock into these things versus the empowerment of decision making. So to what John said, yes. I can, I can take antidepressants, but antidepressants are only going to carry me so far. They're only going to carry me so far because there's a neural processing problem that I'm having that I need to supplement with antidepressants, with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And that this is just one example, right? So I have anxiety that spikes high at night. So, uh, one thought is I could take Xanax. Um, I could take a Benzo. The problem with me is that I do not want to become reliant on that. So instead I use gabapentin, uh, Neurontin, because uh, there's, um, what is occurring at night is also a lot of nerve pain that I have. So, you know, again, but what am I also doing? I'm also, uh, ensuring I'm staying physically active. I, I watch my diet. I, I do everything I can. And sometimes when I have the bouts with anxiety, I have to do the, the, uh, deep breathing exercises. Again, people are like, Oh, I suck at meditation. I'm like, yeah, n nobody's it's <laughs> not normal to do that. Exactly. But it's, it's, it's about just focusing on breathing first before we go into like, you know, uh, astral projection or wherever the hell you think you're going levitation it's like just focusing on breathing and doing the deep breathing the diaphragmatic breathing 
actually helps. It's really strange because when, when I'm in an anxiety state, I hold my breath. I'm not really? breathing. Yes. And I don't even realize I'm doing it because that's a normal thing. Have you heard, and, of, this, have you heard of the square breathing? Yeah. It's um, inhale, six seconds, hold, six seconds, exhale, six seconds, hold, six seconds. You know, and I learned that from um, uh, Tai Chi. Oh. But it works. It really works. Um, again, it's not instant. It takes time and effort. Um, and as I said before, I'm not the Dalai Lama. These are just tools that I've used that keep me away from the freaking bottle. And that's <laughs> so it. Do you, so do you actually, do you meditate? Yes. So I, here's here, here's mine with meditation, because my psychologist is a wonderful Japanese Buddhist. I oh love boy. him to death. And he tried to teach me how to meditate. I think I might be able to go back to it now, but this is still when I was like pre-medication hypomanic. Oh boy. I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> Like, like I meditated like I did when I was riding motorcycles and I saw something nice. Hey, that was nice. I'm done. What's next? Um, so that is something, but talking with him about, uh, I love what you just said. It is like many things in life. It's practice, right? Just like when you were a kid learning how to walk, just like when you learned something new, just like music, you know, just like everything else. I mean, think about the mundane things we do in life, like typing. Do you know how long it took me to learn how to type? Months. I right? believe it. Me too. Until you, until you can do it without thinking. And that's what I try to, you know, I try to tell myself that, but I also like to tell other people that as well as the fact that many of my responses to stimuli, my responses to stress, my responses to anxiety, things like that, are over the years practiced events, right? My practice was drink, or my practice was bury it until I can drink, or my practice was something else, right? Or just to ignore it, or just to find some other way to dig through it. Uh, it has taken a long time and a lot of practice to get where I'm at now. And that is not close to perfection because I'm not balanced, but I'm practicing. So I'm with you. Yeah, no, like like I said, I talk a good game, um, but <laughs> well, you know, I could stub my toe and it could ruin my entire day if I allow it. Exactly. If, if I allow it, exactly. Um, I can get down on myself because of one mistake, because I'm I'm railing against at the time it was thirty six years of very hard programming of black and white thinking. It's like no. <laughs> I'm not all good or all bad. I'm I'm pretty damn gray. You know, I'm one of the gray aliens. I'm going to probe your butt and take you up into the light and all that. No, it's just I'm imperfect. I'm a human being just like every other human being. I'm imperfect. Exactly. But, but I, if I strive for balance, just like you said, then that's enough. And I got to be okay with that. Or I'm sorry. I don't have to be okay with that, but that's where I would like to be. I would like to be okay with that, that that is enough. But the going back to our topic is not putting all of our stock into, if I don't take this pill, I'm not going to be okay. Pill is only a piece of it. And what John and I talked about earlier before the podcast was 
say you have to run 100 yards, the pill is only designed to get you to 30 yards to take mm-hmm. some strain off of you. The rest of it is W-O-R-K. It's decision. It's just making a decision. And we're going to fall short. And it's okay we're going to fall short and we get back up again. Because we've got to remember why we're doing this dash. It's about staying alive. It's about making our life worthwhile. I want my life to have meaning and my life won't have meaning if it's all about me. Performance enhancing drugs. Sorry, the the 100 yard dash thing got me thinking right about steroids and and HGH and all the other stuff that's been around. What's the second word in that? It's enhancing. Every one of these athletes that get busted for drugs and everything else, are they are enhancing what they already do. I'm not condoning any of it, right? But what I'm saying is the discipline and the effort that they're going through to get where they're at cannot be discounted, right? They're mm-hmm. cheating to get that extra edge because we're supposed to be clean and supposed to be a – It's kind of like a, an honor-based sport, right? Where it's my physical against your physical. Uh, and I don't blame people for wanting to get uh, an extra edge. But bottom line is these athletes didn't get this way. Bodybuilders didn't get that way because they were lazy, right? No. There's a lot of discipline. It's like, ooh, I'm going to inject steroids and I'm going to be like the Hulk. That just doesn't happen. There's a lot of work. Those dudes work like 12 hours a day. But anyways... Um, you're hitting on something important easy yeah so the problem is is easy is short lived it's it's always short lived instant gratification is short lived it's a bottle rocket there's no longevity it goes up pop and then it's done so steroids like in the short run what are you looking at yeah okay you're gonna get you know swole or whatever the kids say Um, and that's great so let's talk about 10 years from that moment. You're going to have endocrine issues. You're going to have renal issues. You're going to have multitudes of different issues. And is it worth it in the long run? No. So it's diminished gains. There's no point. There's diminished returns is what I should say. Uh, so how about then doing the hard work? Because then there's longevity. Mm-hmm. There, there's there's actual gain and sustainment in that hard work and 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 that's where at least I, I can only speak for one alcoholic and that's me is that my sobriety is contingent on my decision making and my commitment to my mental health not anybody else's mine and and I got to remember all my pitfalls along the way. Is it easy for me to go back to being angry and blaming the world for all this stuff? Absolutely it is. But the sober mind is is about, for, for me, I can, again, only speak for me, is making that decision to not do that. To go, okay, what's happening in this moment? I'm upset. Why am I upset? I'm upset because of this. And this made me feel this. Is this permanent? No, this is temporary. Breathe. <sighs> okay, we're going to do it again because I'm still stuck there. And, you know, like these are the good things. Whereas before I'd be like, you know, shine that, time to go tip up a bottle. And that's where I'd stay. 
It was great. Yeah. I mean, it worked. Don't get me wrong. It worked. Um, there was a lot of cost to that, that easy button. A lot of cost. Absolutely. It's, it's like uh, drugs and alcohol, whatever. They do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, they work. <laughs> they work. They work. It's just all the crap that it comes with is, is, what's, is what's bad. Right. Um, I want to ask you, well, first, I want to make a statement about the discomfort and kind of what you said about the shopping cart thing back a minute ago, <laughs> is we're, we're being told and we're being inundated by society that you should not be in discomfort. You should not be unhappy. You, everybody is supposed to look like this. They're supposed to act like this. I mean, don't offend anyone right but i mean even back in the day in the 80s right and you had all the magazines and there's still magazines like in the grocery aisle right and different things and and you know there's been conversations for a long time about body image and how these things have been inundating people with body image issues and then instagram comes out and oh my <laughs> god i love the uh oh, when, when they they uh they get people for photoshopping stuff and it's just like you, none of this stuff is realistic and it's you know this perfect lifestyle there's perfect everything and it's like none of this is realistic but that's what we're bombarded with and that's what we expect right there must be something wrong with me because i'm uncomfortable there must be something wrong with me because i'm anxious there must be something wrong with me because i don't look this way and the bottom line is there's not you know there's seven and a half billion people in the world and there's like this we're listening to this person that has ten thousand followers like i don't care you know, well, it's like, why do they have 10,000 followers? You know, I, I don't are, know. are you famous for being a buffoon? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what I can and can't say in, in, in podcastville, but there's a, there's a ton of buffoons out there. You know, uh, you know, one was famous for not making it through special operations training and partying and, you know, next thing you know, comes an internet sensation, but it's like, why would you value the opinion of that individual? Their entire existence is shallow and vapid. And mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be judgy prick over here, but I'm dead serious when it's like we put value in that which is shallow and vapid. And a great book on this would be The Narcissism Epidemic by Dr. Jane Twenge. And she also touches on it again in iGen to to see the cost of this this ideology, this thinking. And like there's a there's a serious psychic cost, there's a spiritual cost, and there's a personal cost to all of it. I've heard you talk about that. I'm still got to go back and read that one. It's on my Kindle list. Um, you, won't be, you won't be sorry. Oh no, I should probably get it. I wonder if they have it on Audible. I'm gonna see about that because I drive. A they, lot, do. So. <laughs> they do. As a matter yeah. of fact, they do. They do. Um, the other thing you said earlier that I, I really liked and that's why i wrote it down was the reliance factor right and that kind of just got me chewing on the fact that what am i relying on um with my mental health right am i relying on this medication or am i relying on the cog cognition dojo um you know and it's it's kind of like you know i've thought like hey what would happen if i go off of all of my meds well, number one, if I did it all at the same time, that'd probably be a really bad idea. But, you know, the other side of it is I am confident enough that, and I'm cognitive enough that I would be uncomfortable, but I would not be destructively 
I would not have destructive behavior, right? I would understand that I'm manic and, you know, maybe put some external controls in place, like with people that say, hey, watch me, make sure I don't do this, you know, or something else like that. Um, the same with depression is like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm depressed, so watch me, make sure I don't do that. Maybe let's go hit the water or do something that's, you know, not depressive. You know, so it's that reliance factor, I think, is a is an interesting concept because it's okay at the beginning to rely on something to get your feet under you because just like if you, if I fell down and you picked me up, I am relying on you to get me vertical until I'm vertical, right? And then it's my job to start walking. So. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I just not- dug that because. Yeah, go on. Sorry. No, I, I just dug that because I think that is, so if I'm going to ask, you know, where's where's the dividing line? Where's the definition come from between, you know, dependency and proper use of medication? Uh, I like that reliance factor. What am I relying on that medication for? If I'm relying on it to feel good, you know, maybe I need to reevaluate that. If I'm relying on that medication to help me balance everything that I'm already doing, that's different than relying on the medication simply to feel good or relying on the medication to not be anxious. Anxiety is a cortisol response, right? Yes. We're biologic animals. We see things that are scary. Our cortisol goes up. Our adrenaline goes up, right? Now, if you're exposed to a stressful environment over a long period of time with elevated cortisol levels, that creates some chemical imbalances in your brain because then your cortisol doesn't really go back down. And that's a lot of that long-term PTSD stuff. But cortisol in and of itself and being anxious in situations with elevated cortisol is normal, right? The problem is, not the problem, but the issue is when some people have an over, what do you call it? It's over the top, right? It's like an overstimulated cortisol, like you, you produce too much of it or it just comes up like for no reason at all, like anxiety disorder. Like I'm laying there and I've got an elephant sitting on my chest for no reason. That's an anxiety disorder, right? Because you have no stimulus, right? Just like you said at, at night, like all of a sudden you've got high anxiety at night. There's no stimulus causing that anxiety. Oh, I, know, I know why it is. <laughs> But when, at, at night was when we'd operate. Oh yeah, yeah, and and it was years of doing that, and and it really had a furrowing effect in my brain, and I never realized it till I was sober. Going, wow, what the hell's going on? Like, I, whew, I'm like fired up at night, and like a, a friend of mine, a, a former SEAL, was like, dummy, <laughs> you, you just spent like a couple of decades working at night <laughs> like, yeah exactly oh he's like that he's like yeah remember being a night owl partying out in san diego i'm like yeah yeah he's like yeah yeah that's kind of the lifestyle i i imagine it's a contributing factor to it <laughs> it's a contributing factor yeah right so you know that's a contributing factor that's a background but at, to to my point is you have no external direct stimulus at the moment that is Mm. causing that anxiety like if you're in a crowd and that crowd starts rioting okay that's an external stimuli that says no kidding i need to be anxious and be doing something or leaving or whatever right Mm -hmm. 
But when you're sitting there in your house in a completely safe environment and you got that elephant sitting on your chest, okay, that's an anxiety disorder, right? Yes. And that's that's what that's where that to me that delineation comes from is the fact that it's okay to be anxious in a social setting. That's normal, right? Sitting alone in the dark and just being completely anxious is more the anxiety disorder side, right? So on one side, it's okay to be uncomfortable. On the other side, it's like, hey, this is an abnormal physiological response that probably needs to be addressed, right? And it's a fine line, right? Because for everybody, everybody's an individual and everybody's different and I'm not discounting one and, and preaching up the other. I'm just saying that that reliance factor and what is normal to an individual and what is abnormal to an individual is something that is very subjective. But I just find it very interesting is the fact that, you know, most everybody I know that has anxiety disorder is without stimuli, they have anxiety, right? Weird. Weird. And then people are like, you know, sitting in traffic, I had an anxiety attack. Um, This can happen. But the other thing is, Traffic is stressful. <laughs> so again, back to the thing, there's there's a there's a discomfort and there's a disorder, right? And you know, we're told we're not supposed to be uncomfortable, right? So it's okay to be in discomfort, right? What you need to look at and what I need to pay attention to is when does that trans you know, when does that go over into and transfer over into disorder? And I was taught disorder, um, and I really like this explanation, disorder consists of two things. Number one is distress, and number two is impairment, right? Am I so distressed that it is affecting other aspects of my life that is disturbing me to a point where I'm no longer acting normal, um, et cetera, right? The other is, do I have physical external indications of said distress, right? Am I impaired? not like impaired drunk, but is my life impaired? Like are my social interactions impaired? Are my work interactions impaired, right? So there's that to me is really another line between, you know, discomfort and disorder, right? Distress is not discomfort. Distress is like, I am drowning and I need somebody to help, right? Discomfort is, I don't like water, right? I mean, there's like two different aspects of that. And what I like about that definition is it's subjective and it's objective because I've had people ask me like, hey, um, what do you think about this, right? You know, smoking weed or doing something else or what do you think about this medication or whatever? I'm like, does it bother you? You know, are you impaired? Does it affect your everyday life? Does it affect your function? Um, and sometimes you you know that it affects the function and that they're impaired, right? And the other times it's like, you know, either the individual's like, yeah, I really am bothered about it and I think I want to make a change. And on the other side is the individual's like, you know, I don't feel guilty about my behavior anymore because it's really not a distress thing. It's just me. So anyways, I like that definition. That was a rabbit hole again. Sorry. No, it's fine. You know, like this, this is, we're hitting on some really important things here. I think, um, you know, cause as much as I like making fun of the military, the military has given me a lot. You know, something you were talking about earlier. It's like, hey, John, I felt like 
cutting you off, but I didn't, uh, again, you know, the miracles of sobriety, shut up and let him finish. Um, what do we do when we run out of air when we're diving? Oh, do we freak out? Because that's a normal response is to freak out. Oh, that is brilliant. Right. I can still talk about that. <laughs> but no, we've been trained through a series of stress inoculations, mostly pain and humiliation. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> that yes. no, I'm not. I'm, I'm empowered in this moment to take control of the situation. So to, I have to critically think past panic, what's happening. And this has actually happened to me. I've run out of air while diving. I've actually had a full rig flood out while diving. And I'm not going to lie to you and be like, yeah, I was courageously without fear. I absolutely <laughs> freaked out. Absolutely freaked out. Oh, my God. Because, you know, when you run out of air when you're diving, just so we're clear, it happens on an exhale. Okay? It doesn't happen right. on an inhale. It happens on yeah, an like... exhale when you need air. Yeah. 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 That's when it goes down. It was <sighs> exhale. <sighs> Oh, <laughs> and it was totally ideal you know it was two o'clock in the morning i'm underneath the ship i got hogging lines all around me i'm wrapped up in all kinds of just nonsense and i'm like oh not good so how did i get through that you know i got through that because of training and my dive buddy you know like he got me to the roof but i also experienced something they didn't tell me about was something called laryngeal stim so I was taking, uh, I was doing my best to tug on my regulator to get air into me and I was getting water into my larynx. So my larynx slammed shut because mm -hmm. my body was trying to protect itself from drowning. So when I got to my dive buddy, he puts the regulator in my mouth and guess what I can't do? I can't breathe. Can't breathe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, so now my whoobie's gone. <laughs> but again... Did I, did I bolt? Yes. I'm not going to lie to you and say I didn't. I did, but I did something really important before I did. I exhaled on my way out. Hmm. Because if you don't exhale, just fun fact for non-divers out there, uh, you're going to get something called pulmonary overinflation syndrome. Or as I like to, other people like to call it stroke. Uh, <laughs> you can get arterial gas embolism. and, and It is a stroke, yes. Yeah, it, it can kill you. And that's just that's just one of the many uh, or the one of the five that uh, occurrences of pulmonary overinflate. But bottom line is, did I execute perfectly? I'd say no. If I go back in time, I definitely would give me a talk and do. But I fell <laughs> back lived. on my training. You did, and you lived because of the training. Now I'm going to fast forward, you know, many years to how. Did I overcome my social anxiety where I'd have panic attacks in very public places? Um, I couldn't be around people. That's what I would tell myself. If I go to these public places, I'm going to start to shake. I can't breathe. I'm going to freak out. And it's like, well, what am I telling myself versus what is actually happening? So we did something called flooding at the Oasis Clinic where they would take us to the mall and drop us off. Oh. And, and they would... It was different times throughout the day. There would be, the mall would be have almost nobody there, and then it would start to fill up. And over time, and the other piece of that is called immersion therapy, where we walk our way up to it. I think flooding has changed. I think they call it immersion now. 
I can't remember. I'm not a hmm. psychologist, but it worked because it, it just took time. It's that stress inoculation, just like did I know to hit my reserve and not freak out underwater? No, I went through something called pool week where they they <laughs> literally beat the crap out of they, you. They beat. <laughs> I had no poop left. <laughs> I had no poop left. But but there was a reason behind it. There was a why. And it's like if I can train myself to not drown while diving, yes, then I can train myself to go into public places and not freak out. It's just going to take time and effort, and that's where it is. And like I, I'm not going to lie to you and say I'm cured. I still have bouts with it from time to time. Last week, and I had to go to an amusement park for um, the uh, company I work at, and and I'm not going to lie to you. There's a part of my brain that's like, oh, oh god, but you know what? I had a great time. Good. And I noticed that I had, I was like, I'm having a great time. Wow. That's not like me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, mental health. Thank you, mental health. Yeah. I like it. One of my favorite pictures uh, on the diving side, one is people used to ask me like, are you scared? Yeah. Is that, is that macho thing? You scared? You scared to get in the water? I'm like, yes. As a matter of fact, I am. And the reason why is mammals, mammals don't breathe underwater. That's just a, a, a fact of nature, people. Uh, we don't ingest water and live. So, yeah, I'm scared every time I get in the water. But to your point, I overcame that discomfort. There are many dives that I enjoyed. I enjoyed the heck out of spearfishing and breath hole diving and everything else like that. But um, diving is inherently uncomfortable, because of the whole aspect of death um, being around you. So a lot of people can bury it. But one of my favorite pictures, I used to have it up here in the office, was a picture that I took of the underside of our ship from a 110-foot decompression stop, right? I still had over an hour to get to the surface and four hours in the chamber later. But the reason I like that picture is because of two things. I was anxious as hell when I took that picture because there's no bolting at that point, right? I just finished a 240-foot dive. So you bolt, you die because of the, the decompression side of the house. And I'm like, I still have an hour before I get up there. But gosh, that's a really beautiful picture. <laughs> so it's kind of this, this reminder that I had on my wall for a while. I'm like, that was a great picture because to this point, it was something that took effort to accomplish. And it's like mountain climbers taking a picture, man. That was a hellish slog to get up there. But that one picture or something else like that will live in their memory forever because they owned it. They earned it. Um, and I wrote something down earlier kind of on that, which is uh, I ran a marathon. I ran the Honolulu Marathon in 2008 because I hate running. I, I, I absolutely hate running. And it's just insane. Like, why? Why? Um, I have a lot of friends that run ultras and, and do different things. I'm like, fine. One of my guys is like, you gonna, you gonna run the marathon? I was like, well, I guess since you dared me to sure, <laughs> you know, why not? Right. It's like run a marathon. But, why would I do that? That, that yeah, exactly. Why, why would I, I mean, Honolulu marathon's gorgeous, right? It's the only one I ever did. Um, but you're running a marathon. Yeah, 20, <laughs> I'd rather watch 20, it on TV. Yeah, exactly. Twenty six <laughs> miles. I mean, it's even boring watching it on TV. What are they doing? They're they're running. It's like it's, NASCAR. It's, it's like all right. It's like yeah, exactly. <laughs> Five hours of running. Um, Sorry, NASCAR fans and no, uh, it's fans. oh gosh, it's funny. But what? So my point here was, life is effort, right? Like I appreciate 
as a matter of fact, you can kind of see the picture right behind me on the bottom shelf right there where my right hand is. There's a picture of me in the marathon, right? Um, well, sorry, you people in podcast can't see that, but Mike can. The, uh, but the point is, there is a stark difference between running 26 miles and driving 26 miles, right? One thing is a mundane action that you do every day. And the other thing is an accomplishment, right? Because it took effort, it took pain. There was, there was a lot of pain involved with it. And there was a lot of doing something that I really don't enjoy. And I got a stupid little, you know, metal thing that says, I ran a marathon and a t-shirt and a picture. But that's not the point. The point was I accomplished it. It's the knowledge yep. that you push through discomfort and you... Like how many times while you like is because I I rocked the Boston Marathon and it's <laughs> you, like you rucked you have to explain to people what rock is oh yeah so um, well normal people would just like carry a little Hello Kitty backpack or a fanny pack I was carrying a uh, Alice pack with forty pounds of weight in it and water and all kinds of other dunnage stupidity but it was it was for an event called Carry the Fallen which is uh, raising awareness very for cool suicide. But yeah, mile 10, not so bad. You know, mile 15 is This like, is going to suck. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, and then mile 20. Wow. I'm in, a lot, no of, I'm, I'm in a lot of pain. Mile 24 is like, I don't know if I'm going to finish. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you know, what happened? It's like mile 26.2. To or whatever, it's like I'm limping, and I'm like, I will freaking die before I stop. And uh, Don, <laughs> you know, you heard him on podcast with it. He went, and it like we did it, we did it, and I did it a couple of years in a row. But it was really so you did it. You did it again. Yeah, I did it again. I'm done. <laughs> the first time I did it, I did it with way too much weight. Like I should be dead. <laughs> they had to shovel me past that finish line. But. Um, this next go around, like I, I carried a moderate amount of weight, and guess what? It still hurt like hell. I was like in a m- agony, but it was the knowledge that I, I'm gonna do this. I'm. It's gonna hurt. It's gonna suck. There are other people here suffering alongside me, and what we're doing is 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 important. But what what on the individual level, on the self on the self level, is I need to know that I can push through this for myself. You know, win or lose, doesn't matter. I just need to know that I can. And even if I like fell out, if my hip gave out or my knee gave out, um, I, I was even like, as I was thinking about all these worst case scenarios in my mind, because that's where my mind goes. Um, like, all right, well, my hip can come out of socket at any minute. And then, then what? <laughs> then, you know, everyone's going to think this. And, you know, it's like, what, where, why, why, am I, why am I going there? What does it matter what anybody thinks? It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. I need to know that I can do this. I don't know if that makes sense or maybe we chased a rabbit a little too long, but but the whole point is is the, the willingness to be uncomfortable. I gain more knowledge of myself mm-hmm. from that willingness to be uncomfortable. And Absol- um, and now it's profound. Man, I wish it was more profound when it was happening. well there's a lot of things that become profound later i think it's it's like a lot of the things that at least for me that i was doing is is uh 
I just do it because I was trying to conquer something or trying to do something. But what that taught me through a lot of my life is, you know, one, not to quit, um, which is one of the reasons why, one of the big reasons why I got sober was because I was under control of something besides myself. And also, I didn't like to be conquered by anything. And so, you know, part of my personality is I'm very um, competitive. I'm very internally competitive and quiet. Well, sometimes not quietly competitive, but I, I think all of us that end up here are competitive in some nature. But um, I didn't want to be conquered by something. And that, to me, is also the same the same thing with mental health, right, is I want to figure out how to be the best me. And that is a worthy fight to have. So um, I want to talk about the, yeah, I shot you that uh, email earlier today. I don't know if you had a chance to jump oh, into that article. No, no, it's, <laughs> yeah, whatever. We have lives. Um no, so one of my friends in, in recovery sent me an article uh, last week or the week before. It was in the, I want to say it was in the Washington Post, but it was a it was a long article about an individual that was basically what they call like in his last hope recovery or last leg or something like that, right? Been to, you know, over 10 rehabs, you know, opioid addict, tried everything else, basically was going to end up dead if not for something else. And so there's a research that's going on of implanting electrodes into people's brains for different things like hunger, not hunger, um, weight loss, you know, mental health. They've been using that for a little while for different things. They use electrostim a lot for uh, epilepsy, for example, is targeting certain parts of the brain and, and keeping those things going. So he agreed to be part of this experiment of, you know, this electrode therapy. And what was really cool is the article was written very much kind of down the lines of what we've been talking about today, which is uh, he wasn't chasing a pill, right? He wasn't chasing a magic solution. He was trying to live. And the article was written in such a way that it highlighted more of his effort than it did of the actual stimulation part of it, right? It's Amen. like, here's all the things that this guy went through and everything else. And they put this electrode in his brain and here's all the stuff that they keep doing. And they had a, a good segue on the research itself and other things like that. But the bottom line was this dude had been sober, I think 600 days. And they listed like all the stuff he was still doing, all the meetings he was going to, all the therapy he was going to, all the medication or whatever, this whole thing. And what um, this friend and I found beautiful about it was it highlighted number one, the substance use, thing um i don't think they use the word addict very much but they they use the substance use disorder kind of acronym type thing but the other thing is it highlighted his effort his personal effort and what i loved i almost cried reading it frankly was i loved reading about the fact that this guy was willing to try anything to be sober right mm. and and what a lot of people on the outside don't understand is addiction and mental health is not a morality issue. And for a lot of people, when you go and you cross that line, you can't get back by yourself no matter how much you want to. And it really bothers me that people are like, well, you just need this or you need that. Or why can't you do that? <laughs> why don't you why don't you just stop drinking? It's like, oh, thank you. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> not, like, not like I didn't try. Oh, my God. Wow, you're not brilliant. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks. For, you know, I didn't think about that. So let me go ahead and just 
stop. Um, but I mean, once you cross that line, you need help to get back. And, and what I loved about that was he took the help to get back and he took the fighting chance and he knows that at any moment he can go a different direction, but that electro stimuli gave him a fighting chance and he took it. And that to me is the whole point of what we're talking about is medication there's no magic pill. There's nothing out there that's going to fix us from being us. But there are things that can help us have a fighting chance. Yeah. Decision. I think what he made in that, the, the, the profound part of that, a decision. Like he's willing. That's another one. We use that word often in recoveries. Willingness. He's willing to try anything. To just be sober or, or take a stab at sobriety man and uh you know he say god we say gift of desperation you know in certain circles like me i'm you know i'm not, I'm not here to talk about that but like faith is critical for me in in uh in, in maintaining i want to say content in life as opposed to happiness, elation. <laughs> elation. Ooh, elation. Yeah. Elation, uh, commonly referred to as mania. But uh, <laughs> no. I want to stay elated. It's like, oh my God, your facial muscles would tear from all that smiling. But um, no, it's, 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 uh, it's just the decision, you know. When I see obese people working out or, or walking, it's like, dude, good on you, you know? Hell yeah. Just, you know, seeing a fit person work out, it's like, yeah, who gives a crap? But to see somebody like doing, <laughs> doing the, uh, you could see that they, they've made a decision in that moment. And it's like, that's, that's inspiring to see when I see um, people with prosthesis, you know, going out and not accepting like no, I'm like yeah, I could, I could, I could have a pity party, I could do all this, but I'm, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go swim, mm-hmm. and I've seen that, I've seen quadriplegics swim, they undulated through the water, which is amazing. Um, people with no legs uh, running in marathons with uh, prosthesis, you know, it's just just making that decision, and and I really wanted to get to something really important. Um, is identity. What I have is not who I am. It's really important to understand that. Do I have anxiety? Yes. Is that who I am? No. Who I am is a decision. And that decision is moment to moment, daily, you know, but there's no premise behind it because that's the fluidity of the human experience is decision. But I'm not broken leg. I am not arthritis. I'm not erectile dysfunction. Hmm. And I'm not traumatic brain injury. I'm not PTSD. I'm not alcoholism. I'm Mike. I have these things. Oh, I love it. Absolutely. And I can make a decision to be the prisoner of these, these conditions. Or I could be their master. Contingent hmm. only on what? Making the decision. And, and I can't do it alone. I have to work with other people. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, with, with regard to like Eckhart Tolle is like humility. It's like, it's fun to say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how humble I am because I'm not humble. I'm, I'm an arrogant ass, 
you know, but my humility is contingent on my egoic awareness. How self-aware am I? So in my own, you know, when I'm the God King of my universe, I can't do any wrong. You make me feel this way. You did this and that's how I feel and that's how it is. And I am who I am. I've heard that so many times. Yeah, I've said it, you know, the Popeye <laughs> experience. I am who I am. I am who I am. It's like, no, I'm really limiting myself by saying things like that. It's not who I am. In this moment, right now, I'm not my best me. But it's not a premacy thing. This is not permanent. But I, it's a willingness. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I, I preach a little bit. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so uh, how is it not your best you? Well, anytime, if, if I were to speak harshly or to cause harm to another person with the intent of causing harm because of my inability mm. to uh, participate in discomfort, to not okay. endure that discomfort, but to go kinetic with it. Because I was, I was going to... I believe it's called reacting. <laughs> <laughs> it's being reactive. I'm going kinetic. No, I was going to say, because I, I think your best you is when you is not the 26.2 mark of the marathon. I think the best you is at the 20 to 24. Oh my God, I want to quit. I want exactly. to quit so bad. I want exactly. to die. I don't want to do this. You know? We're doing this. We're doing it. We're doing it. Um, now, so that's, you know, just as we wrap up, I wanted to just kind of reiterate that fact is your best you is the you that is working on it, right? Yeah. And that's all, that's all it is. You know, I don't know. Actually, I'll just, I'll go and say, it. I will never be balanced, right? But I will always pursue balance. Amen. Because, because it is the goal that if I stop pursuing it, I stop moving, right? And just like, you know, there's only one Everest, right? But there's a lot of peaks to get to it. And I don't care if I ever get to the top of Everest. I'm just going to climb the mountain that's in front of me and just keep going. So, And um, not end up in the Rainbow Valley. Is that what it's called? <laughs> I don't know. What is it? Where all the dead hikers are and they have different oh. bright colored whatever. Oh, and they yeah. Call it the Rainbow Valley. I'm like, wow, that's freaking messed up, man. That, yeah, it is. I mean, but, you know, to that point, climbing mountains is hard. And dangerous. You know? And dangerous, right? So, <laughs> so life, right? Um, life is not easy. There's no easy pill. And I kind of said at the beginning, it's like, even if there was an easy pill, I wouldn't take it because I enjoy the effort. And because the effort means that I appreciate the outcome. And if I didn't have any effort involved my outcome would be unappreciated. So. Amen. I, I think you nailed it, man. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it. It, it truly is like the, the effort put in to just find balance and you know, that alone can sometimes just be enough. It can just be enough. Um, but I want to hit on something really important to a lot of you listeners out there. There's this belief that we breathed amniotic fluid when we were in the womb. We did not. And John and I were talking about uh, diving. And I just, I, I think it's really important as a public service annou announcement that you don't breathe in the womb. 
and then that movie, The Abyss, that is not real. Okay, there's no breathing <laughs> fluid. Okay, because that's called drowning when you breathe fluid. <laughs> so you don't breathe in the womb. You have an umbilical cord. Your mom does the breathing for you. Yeah. Sorry, I just I I was overcome with the need to make that known to people. <laughs> Because I've I've had this I've had this discussion with many people that were like, well, I heard that you know that that thing in the movie, the abyss was real, and I'm like, it's no. not, no, that's called drowning. Yeah, you die from that, as it turns out. Um, yeah, under sea again, aliens too, not a thing. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, but but again, with diving. It's inherently dangerous. There's there's discipline required for it, and there's no easy button. You're gonna have to decompress, mm -hmm. okay? And it's uncomfortable. Those have done deco. It sucks because it's like I don't want to be here on this profile right now. And like, if you're like me, the theme to Jaws is playing in my head the whole time I'm sitting there on the on the lazy shot. You know, like dun dun. Like, oh my God, I'm on a baited hook and I still got like 20 minutes left, you know, stuff like that. You know, we did simulated D, but yeah, you know, that's why I chuckle about that. But the willingness to be uncomfortable for the, the big win, the big win is not dying. <laughs> I'll, buy, I'll buy that. Yeah. The big win is not dying. Um, but yeah, man, we, life, you know. I don't want to survive my life anymore. I want to live my life. Surviving my life was drinking. Surviving mm. my life was making excuses for for everything in the world. That was survival. That was a singular thing. But living my life, man, that's a, that's an entirely different animal. In my, in, these are Mike isms, you know. But sorry, I got I'm preachy this week. I got to stop. <laughs> no, man, I actually really enjoyed the session. So uh, it was great to jam. Dude, I appreciate it, and I'm going to try to end up doing this a little bit more than, well, I I have a very busy life, so. Amen. All right, brother. Well, I will catch you later, and uh, just to all the folks out there, be well. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you. You're totally normal. There are other people like you, and uh, don't be afraid to ask and get help, just like we did, because we need it, so. Be weird. It's okay. Be weird. Ooh, we be need weird. more weird. <laughs> we need more of it. I dig it. I dig <laughs> it. All right, later, dude. All right. Oh.